So last time we were together, I left you with a scene um, from last week's message and a quote that I pray that lingered in your thoughts for more than just a half hour after the message. It involved the English writer, philosopher, lay theologian, and literary and art critic G.K. Chesterton, often referred to as the Prince of Paradox. Standing on a London street corner, G.K. Chesterton was approached by a newspaper reporter and said, Sir, I understand that you recently became a Christian. May I ask you a question? Certainly, replied Chesterton, if the risen Christ suddenly appeared this very moment and stood behind you, what would you do? And if you remember last week, Chesterton looked the reporter square in the eye and he said, he is. He is behind me. How many of us live our lives in that awareness? That was the question that we dealt with last week. How many churches live that way? Chesterton's statement is indeed true, isn't it? That Christ is present with us. But far more significant than the idea of Jesus standing right behind us is the biblical reality that for those who have given their heart, mind, and soul to Christ through faith, the omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient triune God of the universe has made his dwelling within us. Is that right? Our hearts, if they belong to Jesus, are literally God's home. It's holy of holies. Do you ever think of it that way? That your heart, if you are a Christian, is a holy of holies where the triune God dwells. Is that a little unnerving to you? But beyond making us nervous, shouldn't it be more empowering? And that's in essence what I began to unpack last time in the second of two prayers the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians. God's empowering presence is exactly what Paul got on his knees and pleaded that God would grant for the church at Ephesus, and indirectly, I believe, for every church that would come after us as well. So turn in your Bibles again, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 3. And we're looking at verses 14 to 21. I'm going to finish that up, what I started this week. Let's refresh your memories by reading that text again. Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. For this reason... Paul writes, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. We said last week that the power for ministry depends upon the presence of Christ. I think that's what this text is getting at. Packed 
in this prayer, I suggested to you that there were seven essential elements that color the complexion of a church when it is empowered by the presence of God. And I have labeled them the seven habits of a spiritually empowered church. And last week, we looked at three of them. Let me refresh your minds. First of all, the first one is that we are strengthened by God's spirit. That's in verse 16. Look at it again. That he would grant you, Paul prays, according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. And I said to you that packed in that one verse was so much. First of all, that God's spirit and the strengthening of God's spirit is something that is granted as a gift to us, I said. Secondly, it's granted in abundant supply according to the riches of his glory. So the question is then, why in the world would we be content to simply go with what we can do, humanly speaking, when God can do so much more if we simply abandoned ourselves to him? That's why Paul prayed as he did in the first chapter in verses 18 and 19. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his, what's it say? Power, according to, toward us who believe, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. So it's granted as a gift, it's granted in abundant supply, and it resonates where? From the inner man, it says in verse 16. It is the inner man that the Spirit seeks to strengthen. Paul's prayer was for God's strength to be granted according to all the measure of his glory through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in the inner man. The outworking of God's purposes is the result of the inworking of God's Spirit. Amen? So when God is present, we are strengthened by his spirit. Secondly, last week, we looked at the fact in verse 17 that we are indwelt by God's son. The first part of verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So the purpose for all this strengthening in verse 16 of the spirit in the inner man is that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's Paul's petition. Not that Christ would take up residence there simply, but that Christ would be at home there. Remember we talked about that? Do you think that Christ feels at home in this church? Again, I'll repeat what I said last time. That Christ can't really feel truly welcomed and at home in our hearts or in our church if we're not allowing the Spirit to clear out the sinful junk that we've got stored up in there. And that goes for us as a church as a whole. Is Christ really settled and at home in your hearts and in us as a collective body? It's a serious thing to ask. Paul's prayer invites more than us having a theological understanding that Christ is in us. Because we could say that all day long. It's a theological fact. And Paul wants us to have more 
than just a theological knowledge of that. But that we might appropriate that presence to every single area of our lives. Because, as I pointed out last time, we live vastly different lives when we become truly aware that God is present with us. For instance, think about the last time you spoke about somebody in the church. And now I'll ask this question. Would your words or tone of voice have been different if that person was present in the room? Or better, if Jesus were present in the room? Because you know he was. If G.K. Chesterton's statement is correct, Jesus was there. We all need what Paul prays for, don't we? Because I fear many times our response would be, Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. Last time we were together, I mentioned the booklet, My Heart, Christ's Home, that I got back way back when I was in Bible college, in which the author compares our hearts and lives to a house in which Christ has been invited to live. But that is only the first step in making the heart Christ's home. In order for him to settle down and to be at home there, he must be allowed to go from room to room and renovate and redecorate. Well, I've given it to you in your bulletin so that you can have it for your reading pleasure. But it comes with a warning. Prepare to be convicted if you read it with any seriousness. Are you as an individual or we as a church allowing the Spirit to clean house in order to make Christ more at home here as a resident? What is true for the person is also true for the church as a whole. As I pointed out last time in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 22, Paul says that in whom you are also being built together into what? A dwelling place of God in the Spirit. That is the result of God's empowering presence in the life of a believer as well as in the life of a church. We are strengthened by God's Spirit. We are indwelt by God's Son. And then thirdly, last time, we found that we are mastered by God's love. Again, second part of verse 17 and into 18. And that you being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. The fundamental principle of the Christian life and true knowledge of God is that we are rooted and grounded in love. Is that right? When God's presence is empowering us, when we are being strengthened by the Spirit in the inner man and Christ is settled and at home in our hearts through faith, guess what happens? Love happens. Love happens. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23. Some of you are probably very familiar with this text, but let me read it anyway. But the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, 
gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And last week, I made this point that the fruit, singular, of the Spirit is love. And that's an umbrella which covers all the rest. So joy is love, strength, peace is love, security, patience is love, endurance, kindness is love's conduct, goodness is love's character, faithfulness is love's confidence, gentleness is love's humility, self-control is love's victory. And I put it on the screen this time for you because so many people said, I wanted to write that down, but you didn't have it on the screen. <laughs> so there it is. If you don't want to write it, you can take a snapshot of it with your phone. Love is the byproduct of the Spirit's presence, and it's the identifying mark of Christ's people. Remember, John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And by this all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. So when God's presence empowers us, we become mastered by God's love. Fourthly, new stuff now, we become motivated by God's majesty. Motivated by God's majesty. Look at verse 18. Back again in Ephesians chapter 3. So that being rooted and grounded in love, we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Now, when the body of Christ is anchored by love, it becomes strong and productive and firmly established, right? It is also able, according to Paul, to mentally grasp and apprehend the immensity of God's character as the God who is love. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that we can know everything about him or understand him completely, but as his spirit works in us and we yield to him in obedience, we come to understand the dimension and the vastness of Christ's love for his church. That is not something that you can get from a book, right? To comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, you don't get that from a book. It surpasses knowledge. It is beyond the scope of academia. Let me give you an example. It's like trying to analyze and describe a lover's kiss in scientific terms. Think about it. Do you know what the scientific term is for a kiss? Osculation. There is a scientific term. That sounds great, doesn't it? Worse yet is the scientific definition. Here's the definition of a kiss. The anatomical juxtaposition of two orbicularis oris muscles in a state of contraction, unquote. That's the definition of a, 
of a kiss scientifically. Really kind of floats your boat, doesn't it? Makes you want to go out and do that, doesn't it? That's exactly what I'm talking about, what Paul's getting at here. You don't understand the breadth and the height and the length and the depth of God's love. It surpasses knowledge. You don't get it from a book. I'd say like Louis Armstrong said about jazz, man, if I got to explain it, you don't got it. (laughs) Comprehending the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love for us in Christ can only happen through the experience of knowing Christ in a personal relationship. And even then, we only get glimpses of it. But those glimpses reveal the presence of God and empower us to go further with him and to know him in a more intimate way. In his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, the late Brendan Manning shared this poignant experience that I think lends some light here. He said, I directed a three-day silent retreat for six women in Virginia Beach. And as the retreat opened, I met briefly with each woman and asked them to write on a sheet of paper the one grace that they would like to receive from the Lord during this retreat. And a married woman from North Carolina, about 45 years old, with an impressive track record of prayer and service to others, told me she wanted more than anything else to actually experience just one time the love of God. I assured her that I would join her in that prayer. Well, the following morning, this woman, whom I'll call Winky, arose before dawn, went for a walk on the beach, which was less than 50 yards from our house. Walking along the seashore barefoot with the chilly waters of the Atlantic Ocean lapping up against her feet and her ankles, she noticed some, some 100 yards away, a teenage boy and a woman some 15 yards behind him walking in her direction. In less than a minute, the boy passed by to her left, but the woman had made an abrupt 90-degree turn and walked straight toward Winky, embraced her deeply, kissed her on the cheek, and whispered, I love you, and then continued on her way. Winky had never seen that woman before in her life. She wandered along the beach for another hour before returning to the house. And she knocked on my door, Brennan wrote, and said when I opened it, she was smiling. She said, our prayer was answered. See, if we're experiencing God's empowering presence in our lives and in the church, These are the kinds of things we can expect to see what Paul prays for here. We will be strengthened by God's Spirit. We will be indwelt by God's Son. We will be mastered by God's love and motivated by God's majesty. And then fifthly, we will be overflowing with God's fullness. Look at verse 19 again. To know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. What a prayer. Imagine if that prayer got answered. That's what he prays for. You think that God wants to answer that prayer for you? For our church, for this church? This is almost impossible for us to fathom. 
How can we be filled up to all the fullness of God? How is that possible? Well, the word Paul uses means to fill to the full. Means to be filled up to all the fullness of God. Therefore, means to be totally emptied of ourselves so that God has completely replaced ourselves. In this book, Paul talks consistently about that condition of life. As a matter of fact, in chapter 4 and verse 13, he speaks of attaining Christian maturity to the fullness of Christ. Look at it, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13. He says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And in chapter 5, verse 18, Paul encourages us to be continually filled with the Spirit. In verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That's what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. And here, in chapter 3, he prays for us to be filled with the fullness of God. Did you notice? In chapter 4, verse 13, to be filled with Christ. In chapter 5, verse 18, to be filled with the Spirit. And here, in chapter 3, in verse 19, to be filled up with all the fullness of God. You've got the triune God here that Paul's referring to, that we might be filled with him. Clearly, the point is to be completely under the influence of God. Does that mean we can have all of God hold up in the, in the 12 or so cubic feet of space that you and I take up on this planet? Some more, some less. Does God limit himself to our capacity? Well, not so much. As a matter of fact, think of it this way. To be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, someone said, is like immersing a thimble in the ocean. Get that picture in your head? The thimble is filled with the ocean, but the ocean is not fully in the thimble since the thimble of wa- full of water does not diminish the ocean one iota. The thimble has the fullness of the ocean in the sense that it contains every ingredient that makes up the ocean. All the essential characteristics of the ocean are in that thimble. And that thimble is immersed in the ocean. When we have the fullness of God, we possess all the essential characteristics of God as regenerated people. Do you believe that you have that? Things like love and forgiveness and patience and long-suffering and compassion and humility and unity, etc., etc. Do a study on all the characteristics, the essential characteristics of God. And that is what God says we have as believers in Christ at our disposal if we allow ourselves to be emptied of ourselves and 
allow God to fill us, like a thimble immersed in an ocean. And that fullness, you know what happens? It spills over into the lives of those around us if we live for Christ. That's how we can communicate Christ to the community. So the question is, are you immersed in him? Are you immersing yourself in Christ, in God, in the Holy Spirit? That's Paul's prayer for us, for the Ephesians and us indirectly. You see, the power for ministry depends on the presence of Christ in our lives. And when it's there, you know as well as I do that it's unmistakable. It is unmistakable. It becomes evident in the life of a church. We exhibit all of what has been mentioned here in one form or another. But in addition, sixthly, we are overwhelmed by God's wonder. And that's in verse 20 of chapter 3. After praying for all of these, t- these things for the church, Paul erupts into this incredible doxology. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church. The wonder of God's incredible grace and wisdom is absolutely astounding. In Christ, he allows us to comprehend something of the incomprehensible and to know something of the unknowable. Paul becomes so overwhelmed with these truths that he has just mentioned that he can't hold in his wonder any longer and he can't hold back his praise and he breaks forth into this, this, one of the most well-known and powerful doxologies in the whole of Scripture. And I love the crescendo effect of God's praise in this passage. Look at it again. Kind of mark this down in your mind. Watch the crescendo here. He is able to do all that we ask or think. No, he's able to do beyond all that we ask or think. Oh, even more, he's able to do abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. He's able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think. You see how the snowball just picks up more and more and more and keeps rolling? And then Paul follows it up with the most incredible words that we can hear. All of this. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. You see that? His power, his effectual energy is at work in us, if we're believers. He is able to do infinitely more through us and in us than we than you, than I could possibly conceive if we let him. If we submit ourselves to him. And unfortunately, too few of us ever really enjoy that privilege. We are too short-sighted. Too short-sighted. In fact, the deification of our human ingenuity has made us that way. 
But at the same time, so has the deception of our human disability. The deification of our human ingenuity and the deception of our human disability stops us from allowing God to do what he wants to do in us. Sometimes you and I are our own worst enemies. John Egan, who died in 1987, was an ordinary man, wrote one author, an unheralded high school teacher in Milwaukee. He spent 30 years ministering with youth. He never wrote a book, never appeared on television, never converted the masses, or gathered a reputation for super holiness. He ate, slept, drank, biked across the country, roamed through the woods, taught classes, and prayed. And he kept a journal published shortly after his death. It is the story of an ordinary man whose soul was seduced and ravished by Jesus Christ. The introduction reads like this, quote, the point of John's journal is that we ourselves are the greatest obstacle to our own nobility of soul. We judge ourselves unworthy servants, and that judgment becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. We deem ourselves too inconsiderable to be used even by a God capable of performing miracles with no more than mud and spit. And thus our false humility shackles an otherwise omnipotent God, unquote. Those are powerful words. So from now on, let's just walk around calling each other mud and spit. <laughs> but oh, what God can do with mud and spit. He can heal people with that. Powerful miracles God can do with us if we submit ourselves to him. We tend to see things that are either humanly possible or humanly impossible, don't we? We vacillate between those two things. I can't do it or I can do it. But we fail miserably to realize that God can do super abundantly beyond our wildest imaginations if we learn to trust him. If he can wrap up the waters in the clouds, as Job writes, then he can meet your overwhelming financial need. If he could stretch out the north over the empty space and hang the earth on nothing, then surely he can rejuvenate your dried up spirit. If he can inscribe the horizon, quiet the sea with his power, and make the heavens tremble at his rebuke, then surely he can get you and I through this personal trial that you're experiencing or I'm experiencing. Because as Job says, these are simply the fringes of his ways. That's Job 26, 14. How much more knowledge of God there is beyond what we can simply see and hear. Amen? Have we lost the wonder of the glory of God amidst the busyness of our overscheduled, smartphone-distracted, computer-generated lives? Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel concluded that this, 
He said, quote, as civilization advances, the sense of wonder declines. And it does, doesn't it? We no longer marvel at the heavens telling of the glory of God. Because we've got an explanation for everything. We can describe how a rainbow is formed. Water has a formula, H2O. The stars have all been classified. And thanks to satellites, cable TV, and the World Wide Web, we can virtually visit places that were available in the past only to Columbus, Vespucci, or some other daring explorer in the time it takes to click a mouse or a wireless remote. You understand how far we've come or how far we've regressed? We no longer sit in awe of what God can do because we're so blinded by what we think man can do. <clears throat> Musician and author John Fisher from years ago said it this way wonderfully. He says, perhaps there was a time when men and women paid attention to God while they lived and worked in the world. God was more readily seen in the fields and valleys that he made and in the sun and rain that determined the success of the crops. It's easier to worship him with hands in the earth than with hands in the guts of a copy machine trying to free a clogged paper feeder. Interesting take. It's difficult to see God as having anything to do with the global economy, power lunches, photocopiers, office politics, and Monday night football. He asked this question, but do we find it hard to see God in the secular world because he's nowhere to be seen or because we're not paying attention to finding him there? Good question. In the first chapter of Les Miserables, the novel, is entitled, quote, An Upright Man. Victor Hugo introduces his readers to the 76-year-old bishop by recounting several episodes that show why everyone in the small French village so love and respect this extraordinary man. He then summarizes the bishop's everyday life as follows. I quote, The bishop's day was full to the brim with good thoughts, good words, and good actions. Still, the day was not complete if cold or wet weather prevented him from spending an hour or two in the garden before going to bed. He was alone with himself, collected, peaceful, adoring, comparing the serenity of his heart with that of the other, capital O. Affected in the darkness by the visible splendor of the constellations and the invisible splendor of God, he dreamed of the grandeur and the presence of God. Without seeking to comprehend the incomprehensible, he gazed at it. Then it says this. He did not study God. He was dazzled by him. Unquote. Now let me ask you. Are you and I continually dazzled by God? God's presence, says a wise old preacher, is often an assumption in our heads and not an awareness in our hearts. 
Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He is right behind me. He's right in front of me. He's sitting next to you. He's in this place right now, hearing every word I'm saying, knowing every thought you're thinking. We must learn to become aware of his presence because we will act differently when we are. And that's what people really desire, an awareness of God's presence. Frederick Beekner wrote that it is not objective proof of God's existence that we want, but the experience of God's presence. That is the miracle that we are really after. That is also, I think, the miracle that we really get. Are you experiencing that presence in your, of God in your life? I think we all need it more. That's just not going to happen. We need to pay attention. We need to be intentional about it. About practicing the presence. Are you increasingly being strengthened by God's Spirit, indwelt by God's Son, mastered by God's love, motivated by God's majesty, overflowing with God's fullness? Are you overwhelmed at His wonder? If that's true, then you and I will become abandoned to God's glory. And that's number seven in verse 21. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be glory. That is what Paul prayed for. That is what all things exist for. That is what God's empowering presence in the church is designed for. John Piper put it this way. He said, the glory of God is a way to say that there is an objective, absolute reality to which all human wonder, awe, veneration, praise, honor, acclaim, and worship is pointing. We are made, we were made to find our deepest pleasure in admiring the infinitely admirable, the glory of God. That's why we exist. And so, the God-breathed words of the Apostle Paul's prayer could not agree more. In verse 21, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So Paul concludes with one climactic, solitary word of attestation and personal appropriation. He punctuates this whole magnificent passage with the only word that could possibly come from his pen. Amen. Amen. So be it. Yes. It is true. It is right. I'm sold out to it. That's what amen means. Are you? Let me close with this. 
J. Wilbur Chapman often told the testimony given by a certain man in one of his meetings. He said, I got off at the Pennsylvania Depot as a tramp. And for a year, I begged on the streets for a living. One day, I touched a man on the shoulder and said, Hey, mister, can you give me a dime? And as soon as I saw his face, I was shocked to see that it was my own father. I said to him, Father, Father, don't you recognize me? Don't you know me? And throwing his arms around me and with tears in his eyes, he said, oh, my son, at last, I finally found you. I've, I've been, you want a dime? Everything I have is yours. The man says, think of it. I was a tramp. I stood begging my own father for 10 measly cents. When for 18 years, he had been looking for me to give me everything that he had. Is that not what God is doing? Is that not what God is praying that we would understand? That we ask God for a measly 10 pennies and he's ready to give us everything he has. Will you take it? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this astounding passage of scripture that contains so much truth, so much we cannot wrap our heads around. I pray, Father, that you would answer Paul's prayer for us individually and as a corporate body of believers. May we be able to comprehend the breadth, length, height, and depth of your love for us. May we be filled with all the fullness and the richness of who you are. And may because of all of that and the awareness of your empowering presence that we may bring you glory to the end of our days. We pray it in the holy and precious name of your son, Jesus Christ, who came so that we might have the abundant life that you desire. Amen.